Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Not again. Not ever again. You've betrayed me for the last time, Troy. God, I was such a fool. A woman in love. No more. I wouldn't bother to kill you, except I'm so looking forward to every last ounce of blood seeping out of your wretched body, Troy. If I believed in demons, I'd damn your soul forever. I'd put a stake through your heart, if only you had one, you bastard. I just wish I could do to you what you did to me. But this will have to do. We're hosting a podcast on curtains! Hi, Troy. (laughs) Yeah, and the Oscar goes to... (laughs) Yeah, you know long I've been wanting to give that fucking monologue. <laughs> it sounds like your entire goddamn life. Oh Roger. my god, I've been waiting. I've been waiting, and thank God for our guest today because he's making it finally possible for me to steal that spotlight and make it my own. Let's just jump right into it, guys. We've got uh, Brandon Paris from Death Drop Gorgeous, a title we've been talking about a lot recently because we love seeing other queer filmmakers uh, get their dues, get their flowers. So we're super fucking jazzed to have him here, and he's here with us tonight. Hi, Brandon. Hey, how you guys doing? Hey, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. Anytime. Yeah, we're super jazzed to have you. Uh, I've been pumped for this for a while. Uh, Thank you for coming on and joining us. And um, I'm so happy that you selected this title. It was actually you and another guest that we we just had on recently, Jay. uh, He also wanted this title, but you hooked it like three days before he requested it. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not playing favorites. It's just a matter of like first come, first serve. So, but like, this is a title that the gays love, uh, understandably so. And I'm so happy you picked it. Uh, what about this title stands out to you? Like, why did you go towards this first thing? I love um, the, I love old school eighty slashers. They're my favorite. Um, I love ones that are super gritty. That just are just just look dirty and gross. Um, I, just, I think it gives them an extra like creep factor to it. And this movie just came to mind. It's uh, it's, it's a little messy. It's a little like DIY, but I think it's I think it's really really effective. There's a lot of really great things happening there. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and a lot of that stems from the production issues they had getting this thing finally finished off the ground. It took like two or three years to film it, which I can relate. I can relate to that on every movie I've ever done. But but um, it shows, but it also kind of lends to like the endearing qualities of this film. But yeah, you voice that you're a huge fan of just classic 80s slashers in general. And a few of the titles you mentioned, they all kind of fall within that same realm. Um, and so it sounds just like that's an era that really has had some influence on you as a fan and obviously as a filmmaker as well, yeah? I say so, yeah. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Death Drop Gorgeous definitely is like a 
love letter to that era of the genre. And I know that all you boys involved definitely respect these classic slashers and definitely just watching it, you can tell that there is a lot of love that went into that and a lot of homage, you know, acknowledgement of the films that came before it for sure. Oh yeah, we um we structured the movie pretty much after like an 80s slasher. We, we wanted to have like a, se- a sequence of the band. We wanted to have like the over the top, like gruesome kills. You know, kind of like echoing back to all the video nasties too. I think that was just there was just so much good things happening there. And these these filmmakers had such a shoestring budget to work with. So I really like seeing what people can create with such a little like small amounts of money. I think it's some of the most effective filmmaking too. It forces creativity out of these people. Um, and the finished products were always uh not, not always the greatest, but there's some there's some uh, some some gems in there. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I I'm I'm the probably one of the biggest. 80 slasher fans you will ever meet in your life roger knows this that's why i keep bringing all these obscure 80 slashers to to the podcast that he's never heard of even though he claims to be a horror fan go fuck yourself troy go fuck yourself (laughs) (laughs) how dare you i've introduced you to cinema (laughs) i know I know, but you know, so like, you know, I, I get it. My films, all three of my films are definitely rooted in 80 slasher. They've all been influenced by various 80 slasher flicks. And this is certainly one of them. I, you know what, if I could have afforded a frozen lake for Mrs. Claus, we would have had an ice skating scene, but we did not have that budget. We had, we had a snow machine, so we got some snow <laughs> there early on. But other than that, that was about the extent of it. A $60 snow machine off Amazon. <laughs> How long did that snow last in the middle of Houston, Texas? Oh, it was, we filmed that in June in Houston. It was literally 110 <laughs> degrees out. <laughs> Those poor people. At least they're standing in snow, though. It, they, I mean, that'd right. be refreshing. Uh, Bryn, so tell us, like, uh, just... You know, obviously, Death Drop Gorgeous has been out for a hot minute now, and you guys are definitely getting some love and some acknowledgement and response from fans both queer and just horror fans alike you know um and it seems like you guys are getting a lot of just support and that's gotta be super refreshing especially for this being your first venture with film is this your specifically your first time working in film uh it's the yeah my first real time working in film i've like i've helped out with different movies throughout the years i've um i've made like really lowbrow trashy gross like homemade horror things in the past but nothing like nothing noteworthy went to school briefly for for film and editing um so i applied a lot of like what i learned there to to you know filming death drop too but um yeah this is like our, our first big attempt um i've been I, I write a lot so i have a, i have tons and tons of stories and stuff i'm hoping to make in the screenplay so you know kind of kind of what i do <laughs> what hats aside from being in death drop gorgeous what other hats did you wear specifically over the course of that production <laughs> oh god a lot so um i was primarily director of photography so i did a lot of filming did, did acting as tony two fingers in the film co-wrote it with uh, with chris and mike and on set you're doing everything i did uh some of the, the minor special effects did some of the lighting um there's times where i'm like filming and holding a light with one hand and um it's just you're, you're doing everything on set like trying to coordinate pizza deliveries for the for the cast <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot <laughs> girl We've all been there, for sure. <laughs> but, I mean, it paid off, obviously. You guys are getting uh, just a lot of praise. And it, it's really, Troy and I have talked about this both on the podcast and together amongst ourselves, that it's so refreshing and, um, I guess, uplifting, you know, as fellow queer filmmakers to see a grassroots production receive so much support. Um, and it just seems really like the horror fans, the indie horror fans, 
are completely behind you guys, and that's obviously launched you guys into working on a new production already. St. Drogo, you guys started r rolling on that last year, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So, um, so Death Row Gorgeous, as you know, it's like, it's, um, you know, pretty, pretty tongue-in-cheek, like, dark comedy. Um, it's almost more of a dark comedy than a horror. It's like a gory John Waters kind of thing. Um, Mike and I are, aren't the biggest, like, comedy horror fans, but we do love, like, the John Waters stuff. And so Chris is very into the, you know, the comedy horror, which is fine. So I think it's, like, the combining our three brains made this kind of funny, gross horror. Where Mike and I, like, prefer, like, the really dark horror. Like, I love, like, really gross, like, brooding, crazy, like, folk horror and just, like, um... You know the darker stuff so i really wanted to tap into you know taking us in a different direction and see what happens so over covid uh, uh mike had mentioned he wanted to film in p-town in the off season um so I, I i took that aesthetic and wrote up a story with it uh, and then worked with him to get the you know the, the screenplay going so him and i kind of did this little a little covid baby wrote this script and then just started started banging it out uh we, we met a cameraman in providence named kevin bowden he scored some death drop too uh, so he hopped on the cruise we had a very very tiny cast we were going to have actors play our parts, but Mike and I jumped in um, just to kind of save money and time. And plus with COVID, you can only have so many people in certain spaces. So um, we had my boyfriend, Ryan, uh, the pup from Death Drop doing sound. So me, Kevin, uh, Mike playing his role, me playing another role, and um, a couple of our friends just kind of making our way to P-Town and filming what we can down there and, you know, filming what we can in Providence. Um, but yeah, it's 70% it's, uh, it's, it's done, so we're moving right along. Get to the hard stuff now, like the special effects and the you know the big scenes. So that's kind of kind of tricky. You guys have managed to like complete two films <laughs> faster than it took for me to get one, even like like a third of the way done. So congratulations, <laughs> that's impressive for your first indie film. Go you! <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. We learned a lot with Death Drop too. Like when we first wrote that script, it was 140 pages. We knew nothing about it. Like how you know what what's like an average horror script? And our friend Phil Gillette, it's a well, Phil Gillette's an actual filmmaker. He um he's done some great stuff. He did The Bleeding House and They Remain. Um, and him and his wife Vicky, who's a writer, and Chris's sister, um, know a lot about this stuff. And like, you guys got to scale this thing back to like 90 pages. It can't be 140. Um, so we, we ended up filming a lot of like adjacent scenes that were involved with Death Trap we never used. So this script, we wanted to keep super minimal, um, super succinct, and just kind of, you know, move forward with it as minimal as possible. So it's been a lot easier, and, like, we're getting stuff done way faster. So we learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, I do. I think that's one thing you do. Yeah, you definitely learn from your first film, you know, what to do, what not to do. Yeah, and Death Drop Grogers is, is, is so much fun. I had a blast watching it. You guys submitted it a couple of years ago to, to the Houston Horror Film Festival, and, uh, when I saw it, I was like, this is going to be a, uh, people are going to talk about this, you know, and I'm, I'm no, and I'm glad that you guys have gotten the attention for it that you have because it's much deserved. And it's, it's really cool to see like such a, such a queer film, even getting mainstream, you know, attention. I know you guys were mentioned like in the New York times and all of the room org and all these other like mainstream publications that are actually embracing this film as queer as it is, as just I don't want to say it's not really dark, but just there are some scenes that are definitely pushing boundaries, right? Uh, and yes. <laughs> to see it get, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, we're not going to spoil it, but it involves a meat grinder. And you might think twice about going to a glory hole, but yeah. So it's just awesome to see, you know, it get so much attention and, and love because yeah, when I watched it, I, I, I immediately messaged my, to my friend, Tony that I run the festival with. And I'm like, dude, you have to watch this film. Like, I know you're not, you're not the film guru. He, he, he runs all the guests and things like that. The part of the festival, I run the film part of it, but I'm like, I know you don't watch films, but you got to check this out. Please watch it. And he absolutely loved it. So 
Congrats. And yeah, and St. Drogo, I have to say, looks absolutely gorgeous. It looks stunning from what I've seen. Yeah. Well, Just the, the landscape, the everything, the tone, the atmosphere, you guys have really amped it up. Yeah. And like we said to Mike, you know, we had Mike on here a few episodes ago and, and we kind of, we said to him that we were just really blown away by, and I don't want to say evolution because it makes it seem like you like, I, I, it's not like you're necessarily doing anything better than Death Drop. Death Drop is just, it's, it's so different. You know what I mean? Like Death Drop is its own entity. I like the fact that you guys went for something completely in a different tone um, and it seems like from what I'm seeing are succeeding in that area as well. And I think that's the sign of a real true like filmmaker who's wanting to explore the craft and just get their hands dirty and, and not, never do the same thing twice, you know, and uh, St. Drogo from I mean that featurette that you re released when you were, you know, releasing your Indiegogo and raising your funds um, was just like phenomenal, like honestly, visually stunning um, from what I saw of it, the acting, everything all around looks superb so i can't wait to see what you guys drop i think it's gonna be amazing i'm very excited for you guys oh thank you very much i appreciate that i appreciate you guys have been big supports of us you know for a while now so you know that doesn't go unlooked and I, it's awesome <laughs> yeah awesome well thank you well and you know it looks very it looks very wintry yeah. the atmosphere of saint drogo looks very wintry very cold much like <laughs> The film that we are discussing tonight. See, I, I'm good at transition. That's a nice right? segue, Troy. It's I know, right? I, I work. I worked on. <laughs> but before we get into, eh, sorry, I'm before we get into curtains, I do want to acknowledge real quick because we we always me and Roger always get excited when we see these little notifications. We have to give a shout out to our latest Patreon supporter, Brian Reed, uh, who joined our Patreon to to hear us ramble even more than once a week about these films uh so thank you brian and if you guys are interested in bonus content check out the patreon patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast there's lots of cool reviews up there that you're not going to see anywhere else including terrifier megan is missing roger's favorite film of all time <laughs> repo the genetic opera and upcoming return to oz Return to Oz, Troy's favorite movie of all time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. but, uh, yeah, um, our, our Patreon content is very different from what you're getting over here. Um, so we're keeping it fresh, keeping it exciting, and we're keeping it full length, which is the way we like it. So yeah, guys, it gives you all the more reason to join in on the fun. Find us on Patreon.com. But right now in the moment, Troy... We got some curtains to talk about, and I'm not talking beef curtains, though that DVD cover <laughs> does look like a vagina. And I'm sorry, I, everybody knows it, we're just putting it out there, the, the poster for curtains looks like a vagina. Are we going to talk about that? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> it, it's, it's very vaginal. <laughs> With a baby coming out of it in that doll face. It's like, <laughs> oh, fuck that doll. <laughs> fuck that doll. Oh, God. Here we go. I got to cool down. We haven't gotten into it. I'm already, like, heating up. Oh, my God. So, as, as you guys heard earlier, Curtains is um, opens up with a very dramatic monologue. And not that I want to jump right into it, but I want to use this moment to establish that Curtains is a movie that is very much built upon big dramatic performances from a from a group of women and one man um and they just give it their all and then some and so i'm really happy that we picked curtains because it is chock full of drama uh it is a movie i feel made for gay men to watch uh and it's just gonna be a really fun review you mentioned too having like a drag queen rhea 
reimagining of this could be pretty, <laughs> pretty entertaining too. <laughs> That's my dream. That is like my dream is either to be in a production of The Women as played all by drag queens or a production of Curtains all played by drag queens. <laughs> that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Yeah, someone needs to go. Uh, yeah, I, there are so much you could do with this film. I'm surprised there hasn't been a remake to this. But um, yeah, so it the production was plagued by a lot of negativity. The original director and the producer actually butted heads, and and the the, the director basically walked off. Uh, and the producer had to step in and, and finish directing the film. And the original director, his name is escaping me. I usually write it down, but I don't have it in my notes. It's um, it's a sick 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 coy or something. Um, Richard C I U P K yeah Sipko Sipka something like that. Sorry, Richard, but you he he wanted his name removed from the film. So like it's really it's really interesting because the director of this film, if you look in the opening credits, is listed as Jonathan Stryker who is the director in the film, the character of the sleazeball director in the film, because the original director wanted his name removed. I guess they butted heads because the director, Richard wanted the film to be more of a, um, like an art house style horror film, but the producer wanted a slasher like Friday, the 13th style slasher. So there is a lot of like tonally different components of this film and it's because two different people really ended up directing it and they just mishmashed everything together at the end and it was filmed over a span of three years so there's a lot of things that aren't consistent because when you're taking that long of a time to film things continuity right out the window i mean so there's a lot of elements of this film that are very sloppy but somehow it still works. Like this film works very much. Yeah, there's. I mean, like it, when you hear about some of the things that were filmed, I'm and I don't know. I don't know in the sense of like what's surfaced, what sequences have been discovered. I mean, are there cut scenes from this movie that have been like resurfaced? There are a lot of scenes that have just never been found. Yeah, I mean, like I know there's specifically there's a scene of of christy there's like an early sequence of her um having like an argument with her trainer christy being an, you know a figure skater um that was filmed like tw- two years after the final you know the uh production wrapped and they they never even ended up using the scene there's all this extra meat that really could have been used to kind of define these characters even more but strangely somehow some way even for having a lot of these girls be paper thin because several of these girls are severely underutilized I'd say that this cast, it makes for still a, a rather dynamic group of characters, a strangely intriguing group of characters, even with them being underdeveloped. I think they're all good actresses, too, which added to it. They all did a really, really good job. Oh, yeah. I think this is actually some of the finest acting uh, from a genre piece from this era, like 1980s slasher. It, it's pretty standout. I mean, you're getting you're getting some really like really iconic horror actresses in this film. You got a Samantha Egger who we have to acknowledge is an Oscar nominated actress. She got a best actress Oscar nomination for the collector back in like 1965. And then she ended up, you know, doing uh, some David Cronenberg movies such as the brood. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, she's, she is, she was very well established. You have Leslie Donaldson who was in happy birthday to me funeral home, uh, and then you have Lynn Griffin, who we all know and love as Claire from Black Christmas, who has probably the most iconic 
death scene from that film getting she's the one that gets smothered with the uh dry cleaning bag and is up in the attic the entire film so i mean you got you have some very recognizable faces in this film and and my um what's his name vernon um uh, john vernon john and Vernon. yeah john vernon i mean so the the cast in this yeah the cast in this film is pretty top-notch and of course samantha egger is just like laying it on like i feel i really feel like she thought she was gonna get another oscar nomination for this but looks like it Liza Minnelli and David Bowie had like a, a weird love child. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I saw it, I was like, <laughs> well, and her performance in this, like in some, you know, we've seen some movies where we've had actresses who've just taken it a little bit too far and it doesn't like work with the character. Considering the context of this film, you've got a group of actresses hold up in a mansion together. Like these are, these are women who would be slightly larger than life because we know how actors and actresses are very dramatic people. Um, and like I said earlier, that opening monologue is a perfect, I think, introduction like to this character, how she operates. She is somebody who is built for drama, I would say. And so it translates very well when she has these big, she's got a lot of these big moments, big speeches, big monologues. And um, I think she handles them very masterfully. Like she is a standout in this film, but honestly, there's not a weak link in my opinion. I think all, all of the performances are pretty top notch. There's not a weak link, but there are characters, like you mentioned, there are characters that are severely underdeveloped. Yeah. I mean, severely. And that's maybe where the film may lose a few points uh, because who ultimately ends up being like the final girl of this film is like the least developed character of all of them. So it's very jarring because you have no connection to her, but we'll get there. We'll get there. The film opens up with the beautiful monologue that Roger so graciously and masterfully delivered for us at the opening of the, the scene. And it is basically the character of Samantha Sherwood played by Samantha Egger, not Academy Award nominee, Samantha Egger. I'm going to keep saying that just because I think it's <laughs> awesome that she's, you have an Oscar nominated actress in this like low budget slasher movie. She is basically auditioning for the role of Audra for this director, Jonathan Stryker, uh, his, his next film. And apparently everyone is on pins and needles waiting for it to be, to go into production like we don't get a lot of backstory on him but there's enough to re to know that this guy must be like a heavy hitter in hollywood like he must be like a steven spielberg that people are just like latching on to, to wanting to know what his next project is because there's a lot of buzz around this audra film when it's not even started filming and the film basically was or we find out that the Samantha character actually secured the rights to this film so that she could play the, the, the lead, the lead role, which is like this juicy role of this like mad woman. So she delivers this monologue in the opening scene and Jonathan Stryker is not impressed at all with her delivery. And we get our first glimpse that this guy's kind of an asshole. Oh my God. Kind of an asshole. Like, I was gonna say. I was trying to be nice. He, he's a fucking asshole. He's the kind of person that like inspired what has become the Me Too movement. Like this guy is Ugh. an awful person, and and you see it consistently throughout the film. He like manhandles his actresses. He's grabbing them by the arm. He's touching them. It's just very inappropriate. But he specifically treats Samantha like a bag of shit, and pretty early on you feel for her like yeah maybe she's not going about handling things the best way possible and maybe she's a little a bit too hungry for this role but that being said it, it, it this guy just he really um treats her poorly 
Yeah, he does. He 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 even just he walks out of the audition and doesn't even say anything to her. Like she's she's talking, she can't see because the uh, stage lights in her eyes. So she's like, you know, trying to see him, and she's, you know, hey, are you? and he he left. He's long gone, and she's talking to herself. Ridiculous, ridiculous guy. Uh, but, but the very next scene, they head to the asylum. This uh, this hospital. I guess it's an insane asylum. I'm, I'm assuming that's what I gathered from it, right? It's a psychiatric hospital. They go in, and I, I like that the receptionist is like not at all initially entertained by these two. She's real bitchy. She's like, "What do you What do you want?" And he's like, "We have an appointment. I'm Jonathan Stryker." But then when she finds out that this is Samantha Sherwood, she's all like, "Ooh, can I have your autograph?" He's like, "No." But they are going to the psychiatric hospital basically to admit her. Yeah, they even make a kind of a whole thing about it. It's been announced that the film production of uh, of this movie that Stryker has been preparing to launch has been put on hold. Um, and that basically she's being admitted into this hospital for apparently emotional outbursts, which she very quickly puts on display when in the middle of like meeting with the doctor she just grabs like a pair of scissors and in the most dr- dramatic way possible like lifts them high above her head and goes and like stab striker in the head and then they like they grab her and they straight jacket her it's this huge dramatic sequence um it honestly like i had been a minute since i've seen this movie so that like me that alone made me jump i forgot how uh, overplayed some of these moments were but i really love this sequence in the hospital well she gets she gets mad because the the doctor is like, oh, well, I thought you were going to be much more, uh, I thought your behaviors were going to be much more prevalent, but you seem pretty, pretty calm. And it's not going to be, it'll be no time at all before you are back in front of the screen again. And it's Jonathan's like, that's, those days are long gone. And that's when she grabs the scissors or whatever. I thought it was a letter opener, but scissors, whatever, like tries to stab her. She's like, they, the orderlies come in and like try to grab her and constrain her. And she's like kicking them in the nuts and stuff. And yeah, it's pretty explosive but they get her in the straight jack- jacket <laughs> and the doctor tells jonathan he needs to leave and jonathan's like i need to have a word with her and basically what you find out is that this is a ploy they are admitting her so that she can do research on what it's like to be a somebody that's in an, as- in an asylum i guess because that's the character of audra the fact that this is like the early elements of what becomes the plot the fact that they're plotting this for this character for the sole purpose of her like doing character exploration is both absurd and absolutely fucking brilliant because i this you know this is something a pretentious actor would do it's very like tropic thunder in a way (laughs) like it's so offensive that she would be like oh i'm gonna go into this real asylum so i could study really meant real mentally ill people and they're just like laughing it off thinking it's a big joke (laughs) yeah it's pretty it's pretty extreme it's pretty extreme and now we get these, I forgot, I hadn't seen this movie for a while either, but I forgot how m- much time we spend with her in this asylum. It's a good chunk of the movie. I did not remember that at all. I actually had the same exact experience. Um, I've seen this movie like 10, 11 times, and I totally spaced on how long they they keep, they focus on her in the asylum. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> It is a long time. It is a long time. But I have to tell you, we get introduced to some very interesting secondary characters, right? Oh, yeah. A whole slew of them. They make this hospital, I mean, in my opinion, they make it look like a good fucking time. 
Uh, aside from the woman who's screaming on the bed, constantly screaming until she gets to the lobotomy, uh, everybody else is laughing. They're smacking things. The one woman keeps appearing behind the doors and tickling people. Um, <laughs> I mean, they they all look like they're really happy. So, I mean, it doesn't look like that awful, to be honest. No, it definitely doesn't. It definitely, it looks like it's a, it, hey, I'd spend some time there. But we do get a couple scenes with Jonathan coming and visiting her and... As you as he, each visit, you can tell that she's getting like more and more like sucked into this mental institution environment. Like she's really losing her sense of self to the point where like the third time he comes and visits her, all she can do is like stare at him vacantly because she's been here for so long. And we don't even know how long she's been here, but it, obviously it's been a long time because, you know, he um, he comes to visit her at one point and, and they have this conversation about he asks her like why she looks so vacant and he and she says like only the the sane ones are and it's just you can totally tell she's losing her mind she's losing her mind and then there's a scene where she's watching tv and there's like a movie playing that she's in and like once the in once the other patients recognize her they all start laughing and pointing at her and at first she's smiling about it but then you can tell it's just totally switches in her and she's not comfortable at all with this whole thing. I understand like the mindset behind this plan, this plot that they've developed, you know, to put her in a, an asylum so she can, you know, do a character study. But I really don't think she thought about the long-term repercussions that could develop being in such an environment. And what's happening here is honestly, exactly as I would expect would happen to anybody in an asylum, because how is she going to fucking get out? I mean, if she had herself admitted, pretended to stab somebody, like, what does she think is going to happen? Like, you can't just be like, okay, I'm done now. I'm ready. I'm going to leave. You can't make that call. And the thing that really sucks here, and I think one thing like that's established very early on is with the character of Stryker, the fact that he just so willingly, like, leaves, he abandons her. He just leaves her at the asylum and, like, kind of, she's forced to fend for herself like what kind of piece of shit is this guy well i think that's part of the plan was kind of get her stuck there you're like why would you want to leave you get the you know free food three meals a day free tickles it's uh looks like fun (laughs) free tickles (laughs) um you think do you think that was actually like part of his mindset like knowing he didn't want to give her this role but she was so persistent do you think that she actually i'm sorry but do you think that he actually like was kind of hoping for this to happen Oh yeah. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Just, I mean, just based on his reaction to her initial, her opening monologue, like you could tell he was, he even tells her, I don't buy you. I don't buy you as Audra, but she is super persistent because as we hear about five times through the movie, she is the one that bought the rights to the film for him. And the whole plan all along was for her to star in it. So I really do feel like he was really up to something and he knew exactly what he was going to do. Uh, and he does. He leaves her there. He leaves her in this fucking asylum to rot. But oh my god, he's such a piece of shit. There is that shot of of her laying there, just completely numb, and a random woman is just petting her. <laughs> and I was like, well, this pretty much sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is an asylum. Yeah, it's very much like a one flew over the cuckoo's nest type vibe, especially when they pull her roommate out and give her a lobotomy and like. She comes back in the room and, and Samantha looks over. This woman is literally laying there with her mouth agape. Just 
Yeah, it's foreboding. It definitely makes me not want to act out when I'm in that fucking hospital. I'll say that. But we do see that someone has given her a copy of Variety magazine, which is on the table, and she's sitting as she's sitting there waiting for Jonathan to show up for his next visit, visit, and he never does. But we see this Variety, and the headline is Jonathan Stryker is proceeding with Audra. Casting is in session, and of course, she is not pleased with this. Yeah, this leads to a really actually well-handled introduction sequence where we're introduced to the six kind of focal female characters who are up for this role. Um, and it's, it's it's handled through a series of headshots. This is the good part. Um, so there's a bad part, too, in my opinion. The good part, I like the headshots. You get a little tidbit of, of each character, not each character, but a few of them kind of doing their thing because they all have different talents. But I love that that whole sequence a lot. Yeah, but one thing that I found weird was a, we only see a few of yeah. these girls, you know, doing their thing yep. and B these headshots are being burned by, by a vengeful Samantha who is obviously, you know, plotting something cause she's angry. Um, and she kind of gives like this story of how she broke out of the, the asylum with the assistance of a mysterious friend <laughs> who is nothing but a pair of legs. And this mysterious friend is like, in the sequence sitting like across from Samantha as she burns these girls photos and she's we never see her face first of all which makes her seem like a red herring for no apparent reason but she's never revisited and like this woman helped break her out of an asylum I need to know more about like how that happened yeah how did she manage that shit (laughs) or is it just me we never find out who it is no exactly (laughs) (laughs) But we do get like, okay, so we get introduced to Patty, who is played by the lovely Lynn Griffin, uh, who is a stand-up comedian, apparently, because she's delivering her set to an audience in a comedy club about how she has always wanted to be an actress. And then we do find out a little bit of exposition because she tells the audience, hey, I'm going to go this weekend to this deserted mansion with five other actresses to vie for a part. Is it, you think that striker is RuPaul? Is that how like Drag Race started? And when the girls sashay away, they are just killed, which is basically how RuPaul's Drag Race should be handled at this point. <laughs> a fight to the death. The comedy sequence is funny too because the audience is literally laughing at everything she says, and some of the things aren't jokes. But maybe that's just how you know cocaine in the eighties was. I'm just like. <laughs> Yeah, no, they, it's so funny because she's like, I want to be an actress. And they all just laugh like it's the most hysterical thing they've ever heard in their life. My problem with this is, okay, so we get introduced to this hodgepodge of like down on their luck actresses who have never done anything in their life versus like a big, big actress who we get introduced to next, Brooke, what's her name? Brooke Parsons, who we find out is this big named actress. Yeah, I got some like Julia Hellraiser vibes from her too. Like, Yes, she very much looks like, yeah, um, Linda Thorson is the actress. But like my thing was, this is like a coveted role, right? Because it's on the front page of Variety. So obviously, and everyone's waiting for this movie by Jonathan Stryker. And so is it really going to come down to like one really famous actress and then a bunch of like... (laughs) Nobodies that have never done anything in their lives? Uh, Well, not only that, but like technically only only Brooke is a an actress a real actress other than that you've got a musician a dancer a figure skater and a comedian uh and then Amanda I don't think they I think she's an actress as well but we don't really get to know her well enough to know her 
trick, like her, her like special special talent. But like each- apparently, it's 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 pulling off rape <laughs> fantasies. <laughs> we'll get there. Don't worry, I got notes on that nonsense. But um, but each girl has like a, a different shtick. But it's I mean I don't even get the vibe that any of them are like celebrated within their area. Like I don't like is Christy like a champion figure skater because she sh- doesn't look like she's doing anything too elaborate on the ice rink later on in the movie. And then you got <laughs> the other girl kind of, she looks like she's doing the dance, the dance sequence from uh, which Friday the 13th has like the, the break. Oh, dance. The- <laughs> Violet <laughs> part five. <laughs> Violet. <laughs> like it makes me think of like that kind of choreography. Like she's fine, but she's not like she's doing anything amazing. So it's not like any of these people are masters of their craft. So what are they doing? Like, going up against Brooke, who is, yeah, like you said, a celebrated actress, when they're like, yeah, they're nothing. But, like, at least they have these different traits to define who they are. That's the one perk of that, I would say, is, like, you've got the musician, you've got the comedian. Like, those are, like, kind of their defining moments because each one has, like, a little moment doing their thing. Um, And without that, they would be that much thinner. So that's the only perk, I would say, that this kind of whole introduction sequence has as is it really establishes who these girls are and what they're about sadly though yeah we don't see all of them we don't get a moment really seeing them before they get to the mansion doing their thing which makes for like a weird hierarchy in like who the focal characters are because you know patty's a focal character and she's listen she's fucking great in this role like what a standout but then also brooke you definitely get a focus with her but everyone else feels very disposable like you know who you're you're top listing girls are and then the rest are just kind of fodder you know what i mean no it's true it, it is a really odd choice um yeah they leave out like half of the other girls are going there and their little intros it's uh it's odd yeah you only get basically you only get patty and brooke yeah and i love that brooke is talking to her big gay agent monty monty steals <laughs> the show in my opinion this old gay, this old query he's just he's living it up that's me in like three years. I know it. Like that's where my career is heading, which is fine. <laughs> Being that big fat gauge and for somebody, but yeah. And you know, like I mentioned this earlier, but like they even, I know for a fact that they filmed a pre arrival scene for Christy did not make the final cut, but like these sequences, I'm, and I'm sure the other girls had them too. I, I don't think it does justice for the character structure to deprive each girl of a moment. If you're going to do it for a few of them, you should have done it for all of them, but whatever we're moving on. It is what it is. I agree. It was just an odd choice, an odd choice, especially for a film that is like a whodunit. Yeah. Right. Because you, you want to establish like characters so that the audience can start thinking about, okay, who, who could be killing these, who could be the killer? Yeah. But you, you really don't get to know any of them except like I said, Brooke, Patty, and then you have that conversation where you find out that it is Samantha throwing the pictures into her fireplace with some just random girl on her bed. <laughs> and I don't know if we were, are we supposed to get lesbian vibes from this scene or what? What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I got some lesbian vibes. Well, she says, she says, she's like, I'm your best friend. But like lesbian or not, this moment is just not explored enough in any way, shape, or form for me to even know who the woman is. Like, am I supposed to suspect that she's one of maybe one of the girls in the house? Like, there's there's no 
inclination of who this girl is and what part she plays and everything. I really wanted you to see the fucking breakout sequence of them getting out of the goddamn hospital. Like, give me that nonsense. <laughs> they had to run past the tickle lady. <laughs> or maybe she, she chased them. them she tickled the, the, <laughs> the orderlies as they led through the hospital. Oh my God. I wanted to see, I really want to see a scene of that tickle lady just chasing people down oh the hallway as, as they try to escape. <laughs> Oh, and you, you you know, you know that Samantha being like an over-the-top self-obsessed actress, this breakout was it was some elaborate concoction where she she feigned like having an aneurysm or something. Then her friend came in as, as like a doctor, like playing a role against her will. Like I'm sure it was some big elaborate sequence. And I really wish it was in the movie. <laughs> Next we cut to the actress. Uh, Amanda, and I have to say, the only reason I know her name is because I looked on IMDb. There are like three characters in this film. Their names are never mentioned. One of them is the final girl. Their name, I swear to God, Roger, we've had this conversation in the past and you proved me wrong. You're like, yeah, somebody said their name. I swear to God, I watched this film again for the distinct purpose of seeing if their first names were mentioned. They never are. So this film, like literally, short changes a couple of these characters so severely it's not even funny well and they give amanda such like a strangely like prominent introduction it's very yeah you, you'd think she's going to be like I, I don't want to say like the lead but you think she's going to be a focus when we'll get to what happens but yeah it is it's a weird the structure the whole structure of this again falling back on the the inconsistencies from the film production like watching it again i was like god this thing is a mishmash but whatever it works well, she's in the bubble bath enjoying herself, right? She's just la- lathering it up. And then we cut to some like weird guy outside of her house putting on a f- <laughs> mask and gloves. Yeah, oh, yeah. This scene goes on way too fucking long. I'm just, am I, was I the only one thinking that this drag way, way too long? How many times does this bitch sit on her bed, read, read a couple lines of a script, get up, go get more wine, comes back to the bed? Reads a few more lines, throws the script, goes back. This I don't need to see this twelve times. Well, and because of the, like how much time they take with this, I think they're trying to you know they're trying to set up, make you think that this is actually like a real scenario. Um, but because of the amount of time they take with it, it actually kind of borders on like feeling inappropriate. Like I feel like I feel like I'm watching a rape up until like the moment she giggles because obviously we find out it's a rape fantasy. But my God, like they they let it go for a hot minute. Uh, and they they really linger on yeah the whole thing you see him like w- watching through the window his yeah his seventies porn stash pressed down against the nylon stockings and then like when he like actually gets in and grabs her and pins her down it reads it does read like very violent it's almost as uncomfortable as the uh, Julie Christie oral sex scene and don't look now we're like how long is this gonna go for <laughs> we recently reviewed don't look now and you know what. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that, that movie is off-putting, but that sex scene is the most off-putting aspect of that film. <laughs> well, aside from the little dwarf woman in that red jacket, and then <laughs> yeah. close second. Yeah, so she uh she yeah, basically what ends up happening is this as as she, this this guy comes in her room and throws her on the bed and starts to violently sexually assault her, but we do find out that it's just her boyfriend who they have this rape fantasy oh stop don't do that (laughs) you ruined my stocking (laughs) and he is not the most attractive man in the world i'm like yeah 
I mean, it's of the era. <laughs> I feel like if you shave that mustache off him, he could he could have been a seven out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> but she also keeps this creepy ass doll next to her bed. Oh yeah. <laughs> what is a grown woman? You can't convince me that any grown ass woman is going to have that fucking doll in their possession. <laughs> That's this doll. Let's talk about this doll. This doll. <laughs> First of all, is about seven feet tall. <laughs> this, this, doll, this doll is way too tall for anybody to like have it to present in their home. Like it's just off-putting. It looks like a real child. That uh, you look at the doll's face, and the doll is like it's scowling. It's like it looks like like it, look, it looks like a Shih Tzu. It looks really pissed. It and, looks like one of the rocks from Return to Oz. It has one of those faces that you need to be a seven-year-old or a forty-year-old. Yeah, the American ghoul dolls. Can you imagine whoever bought her this doll, like gifting her this doll and her reaction of like, oh, wow, thank you for this beautiful doll. Like, where? how do you procure this doll? Like, I, I need to know the story of how it came into its possession because this doll is another thing about this movie that is severely, like, underexplored. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because it comes into play later on in the movie too. And you, you, you never know what, the fascination with this doll is right no so after her um boyfriend they have a this rapey sex scene and he's like oh what are you doing this weekend and she's like i told you i'm going to audition for this part and we so, so we find out she's one of the actresses that is supposed to go to this mansion um it cuts to her driving in the rain we're assuming she's driving to the um uh, to the audition and it's pouring rain and as she's Turn in the corner, this fucking five foot tall doll is standing in the middle of the road. So she has to stop. And this kills me because what is she? (laughs) She's going to audition for this prestigious part of this film, right? So she gets out. What does she use as her umbrella? (laughs) The script. (laughs) She uses the script. I mean, maybe that shows that the script is really not that fucking good. I don't know. (laughs) But, um, I, I mean, first of all, she literally must be thinking she's almost hitting a grown child because, of the, again, the size of this doll is unacceptable. But then, like, there's this whole moment, you know, she walks through the rain, she walks up to the doll, she realizes to the doll, then the doll proceeds to, you know, fantastically grab her. You really think this doll is being set up to be something very important and prominent, over the course of this film and maybe even fancy like fantasy fantastical i mean in this dream this doll has the ability to take hold of you <laughs> to grab you and then the car comes to life and it plummets towards her and she wakes up from the dream. but it's a lot of early emphasis put on this fucking doll that seems great too i i, I love that scene a lot it's uh, it's it's super creepy uh, i think the dark lighting really helps make this movie feel like it takes place in the winter especially in that nightmare sequence it's just like a dark dreary winter morning and then and the whole thing with the doll just grabbing onto her and it's like really gross old face. The whole sequence is very off-putting. I love it. What is that movie that's not Chucky about the killer doll? Is it Dolly Dearest? Dolly Dearest. Yes, Dolly yeah. Dearest. Yes. This doll and Dolly Dearest need to get together for a buddy <laughs> comedy because the two of them look like they look like they're cut from the same cloth, literally. Uh, but like, I mean, these two fuckers, they're terrifying and they're very uncomfortable to look at. She wakes up from the dream. She gets out of bed. She thinks her uh, boyfriend's still there. And as she's walking through the apartment, her dark apartment, she is dabbed by a killer wearing this hag mask. 
So it's Mitch McConnell and Zelda from uh, Pet Cemetery mixed together. Ugh, this mask is so fucking creepy. Listen, when I was a child, before I ever saw this movie or knew of the beef curtains artwork, um, <laughs> I saw an, a lone image of this mask in a like horror movie compilation book, like a, a book about like classic horror films. And this mask terrified me so fucking much. But it was the shot. It was like the shot on like of her like on the ice, you know, wielding the 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 scythe. And I thought it was the fi- the actual face. Like I thought it was the face because like the mask, like from you know, depending on what angle you're seeing it from, at times it is actually quite realistic. And I think that's one of the aspects that makes it so terrifying. Is like. When you see it presented at certain angles, it looks like a fucking hag woman's face. So, yeah, this mask, I would dare say, is one of the best killer masks of the era. Uh, and it still fucks me up to this day. I second that. Yeah, it, it's creepy. It is really creepy. What's interesting is that it doesn't much make sense if you think about it, that the killer is wearing this mask at this moment in time to kill this actress. Because how would this particular killer know that this mask was the one that Jonathan Stryker was going to bring to the house to, you know, intimidate the actresses with? So it really is a little bit of a plot hole, but whatever. It works. It works. So and the killer takes the fucking doll after she stab after the killer stabs the shit out of this act. Amanda, she literally takes the doll. So again, we think this doll, what the fuck is with this doll? Is this doll some sort of fucking is this doll auditioning for Audra? What is the, what is the purpose here? Yeah. You think the doll is being set up to be a centerpiece of the film? Not the case. I mean, it on the cover of the movie. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the inconsistencies are really coming out to play already early on in the film. Um, but um, the, the next sequence you basically have is the girls all individually arriving one by one at what is Stryker's luxurious mansion. Um, we see a moment of Patty stopping to get gasoline and being hit on by a child. Um, and then we see <laughs> what I find very strange, and I don't understand how this worked, but we see Christy apparently like walking up what I assume is a great length to get to this mansion. I mean, like this seems like in the middle of fucking nowhere. I don't know how she even got there to begin with, but she's, she's hitching it. She's walking. Like I'd be scared. This poor girl would freeze to death. Well, again, it comes into play. Like you, this is a, uh, a supposed to be such a prestigious role that these actresses are vying for. And you're literally auditioning an actress, a not providing them transportation to, to a, to this, to, to audition, right. You're just letting them come on their own. That sounds like a lot of these indie horror films that are out there right now, trying to get, people to be involved with them hey just walk to walk to set hey whatever um but you're auditioning this poor actress that doesn't even have a car like where are these people coming from if this is such a person no troy (laughs) they're auditioning a a figure skater that doesn't have a car (laughs) okay so audra is apparently this you know it's the next Big film, but we're auditioning actresses that have to hitchhike, hitchhike their way to our audition. Okay. I feel like it's whatever they do, like a casting call for like Annie. <laughs> they've, got like, they've got like children coming from around the, the nation to like read for the role. Like it really does seem like kind of like, 
Anybody can be there. <laughs> but somehow, some way, this is the, the final six. It's like American Idol. We're voting them down. So we cut to the house now. It's every all the actresses are there. They're around the dinner table. And you just get some banter where uh Tara, one of the actresses, who is the musician, right? Who knows? Because her name's never said in the movie, but she's a musician. Okay, and her name's Tara. Well, you'd also never see her play an instrument. We don't see her do anything until (laughs) somehow miraculously she ends up as the well, never mind. We'll get there. Again, her name, the name Tara is never once mentioned in this movie. Okay, the name, what's the other one? Lauren is the ballet dancer. Her name's never mentioned in the movie. It's like this movie, like, really did not do justice to some of the characters. Like, how are you going to have characters and you're not even going to tell the audience what their names are? Everything missing from this film due to the production issues uh, are, uh, it is presented in a, in a way that it makes it rather glaring. Some movies have covered, have recovered from these moments. I sadly think while curtains, I think is a fabulous visually sumptuous film. I do not think this film ever fully was, I mean, dare I say completed? I mean, like, yes, they get, they produced a final film, but it does not tell a finalized story. No. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot lacking, a lot that is definitely lacking, but there's weird banter back and forth where they're asking each other what they would do for the part. Tara says she would fuck for the part. Brooke Parsons, everyone recognizes her and they're like, well, we might as well get up and leave because she's going to get the part because she's this established actress. And in the middle of saying, in the middle of Patty saying that she would actually go down on the director, he walks in. He's like, oh, 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 that's not necessary, but I'll keep that in mind. And then you get this weird, another weird undeveloped character. At least we know his name, Matthew, the groundskeeper. He like comes and sits at the table and just like being all creepy. He doesn't say a single line in the movie. No, he's he's present, but he doesn't say anything. I got to say this fucking dining room, though. Like, get me in this dining room. I It's pretty great. <laughs> it's a great dining room, and I very much like it. But yeah, um, Stryker is pretty quickly um, made to look like a piece of shit. Uh, I think they, they, they don't really shy away from presenting him to be what he is, which is just an egotistical, self-obsessed, you know, male figure amongst all these women. And he really kind of, I think, plays the power card with them, uh, even without really necessarily saying it to them. He very much, um, as we see later with, you know, he even gets one of them in bed and everything. He uh, is, is it's two of them in bed. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he's very much a figure of the times. Um, and he, I really, he is one character that I cannot wait to see die. He is somebody that I think is rather detestable. And at least there's some characters here that you just, you know, you always have to have somebody in a movie that you can't wait to see get axed. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say I think that when it happens, it's satisfying. But like he is the main antagonist of the movie. for Absolutely. Absolutely. He is. And during this dinner, when when he comes out and kind of is talking to the actresses who walks in, but. Samantha Sherwood in her beautiful striking red dress that we need we need that dress Roger for our photo shoot yeah Brandon just so you know Troy and I plan on doing a a, um, a boudoir calendar of ourselves recreating famous iconic 80s horror movies <laughs> and what 
One of them is is curtains, but we have also recently been talking about how we need to actually videotape, recreate <laughs> the upcoming iconic uh, ice skating sequence. Only because neither he nor I know how to ice skate, so we thought it would make him for a very, very entertaining moment. We'll get that's we'll amazing. get there, but yeah. So you're going to hear that come up a few times. Samantha walks in, and Jonathan's like, "Why are you here?" You know, and I'm going to introduce you to here are the these six actresses, and she's like, "You don't need to introduce me to to them. They all look alike." Um, he's like, "Samantha, are you going to play?" And she's like, "You know, I am." All dramatic. <laughs> I find it pretty. I mean, all things considered, after everything he's done thus far, the fact that Samantha shows up in this fucking house. I mean, this this broad's got balls. She's got balls, and she has vengeance in her. So that's a whole other thing. But like, I mean, he has already demeaned her so much, and he continues to do it throughout the course of this film. Like, there are moments that he demeans her in front of the girls. Um, I, there's only so much I could take as, as as a performer. This woman is, I mean, the fact that she is there, more power to her, man. She deserves that fucking role. I'll say that much. Oh, but he is very resistant on giving it to her. Uh, we see that now uh, Tara and Matthew are in the hot tub screwing. Man, uh, that was quick. Samantha's like watching from her bedroom window and Stryker comes in and asks her why she's there. And she's like, I'm here for my role, my part. And he says, well, that's not going to happen because you are no longer Audra. So again, I think that that just plays into the fact that his this was his plan all along to keep her in the asylum. You know, he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. And then you cut to Patty in her bedroom with um, Brooke, right? And they're playing with, she's playing with these stuffed animals, giving them voices about, uh, there's a stuffed dog and a stuffed snake, right? And she's like, oh, you give good head as the dog is like biting the snake's head. And Christy walks by. She's like, that's gross. And then there's just this whole like it's it's it's, it's attempt at character development between the three actresses. As we gather, Christy is like the young one. She's very naive, very inexperienced. Even Brooke asks her why she's there because she's just a baby. So like was this? okay? so I want to know this, because generally when you write a script, right, you have pretty blatant character descriptions however there is such an age discrepancy between all of these actresses (laughs) that are auditioning so how old was audra in the script is what i want to know because like this brooke parsons and samantha are like in their 40s okay and then you have like christy who looks like she's about 20 so was there a distinct age for this audra character or was it just willy-nilly like whoever we don't care well, we're never even given like the plot description of what Audra is. I mean, we get that opening monologue that I so gloriously recreated earlier, casting directors, if you're listening. No, but other than that, like we don't, I don't know what the fuck Audra's about. I don't know what this role, like they're auditioning for, uh, for a character named Audra, but like, I don't know any details. So it does make it very hard to understand like what he's even looking for. You know, he's just looking for a certain thing, apparently that a certain spark in these characters. Maybe that Audra character just wears that mask. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe she's just haggard. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We're better. Yeah, but um, one thing I think that, again, like with like the way they're handling the characters, and this is going to come up a lot, but 
it's it's strange to me that they take so much time to like give a lot of these moments to these specific characters. Like this scene, they chose to make it between Brooke and Patty and um and Christy. Uh Christy it makes sense to me why Christy was focused on here. But like why is there like not at least one or two additional scenes with additional other girls whose names evade me? <laughs> because only like for the sake of like <laughs> why are they not involved in any way like they seem like so throwaway and it just is it's it's such an achilles heel to this movie i think yeah yeah you know nothing about tara and lauren lauren we'll say lauren who the fuck cares? lauren nobody knows it's, it's lauren people <laughs> uh so as christy's leaving the bedroom she actually hears striker and samantha having a fight inside their room and she stops to listen uh, and they're fighting about basically him leaving her in the asylum. As she's listening, Stryker opens the door and catches her listening to him. And he tries to console her by telling them, oh, we're just acting a scene from an old play of mine. And she's like, well, that sounded awfully real. And he's like, oh, no, honey, come on, come with me. So he takes her to his bedroom. And then we cut to a scene of someone in the basement sharpening a sickle, which I would think you would hear as loud of a noise as it was making, but apparently not. Well, it's like sparking. Like it's very dramatic. And as after the sickle is being sharpened, you cut to the fact that Stryker had ju- has just had sex with Christy and he gets up and leaves without even saying a word to her. And she's just laying there crying. And Samantha sees him leave the bedroom and kind of knows what just happened. And it's kind of, you know, this director, he's an asshole. He took advantage of this poor girl. You know, you know, she's naive, you know, she's innocent. And he took advantage of a moment of vulnerability with her and had sex with her and then just leaves without even saying anything. Yeah. I find it intriguing that they didn't even try to like right from the start. They did not try to give this guy any redeeming qualities. Kind of like what I was saying earlier, like as soon as you, I mean, right off the bat, beginning of the movie, you know, he's an, he's an asshole, but right when you get to the house, like. He's not, I mean, he's not putting on a facade or anything. Like, he's very um, demeaning, I think, to these girls. He, he very much gives me a vibe that he's talking down to them right from the beginning. But they didn't try to, to, to paint him with any pros, any positive elements whatsoever. This guy is just a piece of shit. Like, everything he does, all of his actions, all of his choices over the course of this film are unlikable. Uh, so the next morning, Christy gets up to go ice skating. And she has her little knitted ice skating outfit on that I want to wear for our calendar shoot. And um, she hikes to the pond, to this large frozen pond. I do like, and what this film does really well is it does set up red herrings, right? Because there is, the, there, it always makes sure to let us know, let the audience know that someone has seen what's going on. It's like when Christy leaves or when um, Stryker leaves Christie's bedroom, we cut to Samantha seeing this. So we, the audience, know Samantha saw this. As Christie's hiking to this pond to go ice skating, we get a shot of Matthew, the groundskeeper, watching her. So it does kind of do this really good thing where it sets up, oh, could this possibly be who is the who, who is killing off these people? But she goes to the ice skate. She goes to this large pond uh, that is frozen over. And she proceeds to turn on her little boom box and do a very, you know, 
I wouldn't say elaborate, but very, uh, I guess. Elegant. Elegant. <laughs> skating routine. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, is she like, like you mentioned, is she supposed to be one of the top figure skaters in the world? Because I think I could probably do what she was doing. And you can't ice skate. So <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, she sure ain't like blowing my skirt up. <laughs> she's not doing any triple axles or <laughs> she's landing. I mean, she's, she's getting off the ice and she's landing, but that's about it. Um, I mean, she look cute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this is Leslie Donaldson again, who is a, you know, pretty, she made a name for herself with horror movies in the eighties. And this is probably her most iconic uh, film role. It's certainly the most iconic scene that she, um, that she partook in. And we have a connection to Jay from our last film because he worked with Leslie Donaldson on one of her, his short films, Leia. So, but as she's skating, her radio shuts off. So she goes over to figure out what happened to it. She picks it up and she opens the battery case and all the batteries fall out. And as she reaches down to get them. We see like this little hand coming out of a snowbank. Goddamn that fucking little hand. <laughs> Old Jabba Ramsey hand. Oh my god! Oh, Ramsey. That's one of choice favorite topics. <laughs> it is. I'm going to go on a podcast to discuss Jabba Ramsey in a couple weeks. Woohoo! <laughs> Who killed Jabba Ramsey? Hmm. We've got our theories. <laughs> it was. It was the doll. You're supposed to be Audra. You know it. <laughs> oh, so yeah, she unburies this fucking doll. Why is this doll okay? <laughs> why is this doll buried in the snowbank? And why did the person that buried it think that she was going to find it? It's very specific. This is a very specific choice that this killer made. Also, I believe that the, the, the wardrobe on the doll was changed. It's now wearing something very pink. It's wearing the, it's wearing the exact same outfit that uh, Christy has on. If this would have been a theme throughout the whole film, <laughs> I would have been here for it. I mean, like this doll donning the same apparel. <laughs> that the individuals were about to get killed. I don't know how this killer knows what they'll be wearing or manages to craft it in time, but okay, I'm here for it. But it just, sadly does not. No, the killer also ha- is very multi talented because this killer can also figure skate pretty damn well. Listen, this scene, we've, we've been coming down to this scene before we even get into the specifics of why this scene is the standout moment in the film. One thing you said a little bit ago, Troy, I want to go back to red herrings in the movie. One thing that they do well in this film, aside from having a wide variety of red herrings, this killer is very androgynous. I mean, this killer, the way that even though it's wearing a hag mask, the way they present the body type and the physicality, um, it's, it's really hard to pinpoint if it's a male or a female. And that works in the movie's favor because there are a lot of women, but it's not just women i mean there's obviously a few males involved so it there are times that you're like i can't even tell because the gasping the breathing the <gasps> it's so like strained that at times it almost sounds masculine so it, it does make hard you want to assume you know who the killer is it, it but it's hard to pinpoint it at times because of the way they present this specific figure launching into this sequence let's be real the main reason i think we all wanted to review this movie is probably starts with this scene right here. I mean, it's one of the more memorable, it's one of the more memorable uh, death scenes in 80 slasher, the annals of 80 slasher films. It's, it's terrifying. Um, very oh, yeah. well executed for as, for as much as, uh, for as many misses 
uh, as this film kind of has. Uh, this this whole scene is just exquisitely shot, acted. Everything about the scene is just masterfully done to create just the sense of horror, dread, and, and it takes place in broad daylight which is a, another thing that we're really not used to seeing in horror films. You know, a lot of these slasher films are always about the nighttime. This is broad daylight, like broad morning. It's, it's bright as could be out, but it's just the whole construct of the scene with this killer gliding across the ice against the, the just the bleak snow landscape behind the killer and the, just the hag mask. And, you know, you have the Christie character pulling the doll out. She can't really see at first what's coming towards her. She's kind of, you know, trying to shield her eyes because the sun is glaring so much. And we see this just figure coming at her full speed and then pull the sickle from behind its back and, and come to it's just and it's in slow motion. It's just so effective. So effective. Yeah, I'm curious like how much of that was the the art house approach or the slasher approach. I'm curious like where those things intersected. I'm 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 assuming the uh the doll stuff had to do with whoever was doing, you know, the, the art, art house version, um, which is kind of tragic. I was, I, I, I'm curious to see what this movie would look like if it kind of was going the art house direction with a little bit of slasher elements to it. Man, I, I think the exact same thing on this film. What you what you said exactly was where I was going to go with my commentary on this moment as well, because um, I'm curious how early in your production this scene took place when it was executed. Um, I'm curious if the whole doll trope was something that was tied into the early production elements of the film and when it was dropped. Cause it's obvious after this point, let's be real. The dolls dropped. We don't really see the doll anymore after this. And it's heavily focused on up to this point. Um, <clears throat> but um, this is, I think proof of why if they would have been able to collaborate together, those two worlds could have collided beautifully. I, I have seen many, a, an, a, an art house horror th- film piece of horror cinema with art house style or themes that I think uh, helps the project transcend and makes it something stronger. I love art house horror. Um, and there are so many moments in this where you see what could have been artistic choices that I think kind of got neutered with the final elements of production. Uh, I really wish that they would have been able to maintain that because yes, this, this is, I think just as a small ex- shining example of what, was meant to be with this production. And it is by far the strongest sequence in the film. Things all of you guys had said already. <clears throat> Other things I think that stand out. Um, the mask, it's amazing to me. Like a lot of times with masks and horror movies, there's so many masks that are dependent on shadowing and darkness and, you know, just the overall aesthetic of a, of a killer character design. A lot of times they kind of need to be drowned in, in lighting or shadow, a specific way to make them work. The fact that this specific killer, I think, is its at its prime. Uh, this aesthetic is at its prime during a, a daylight sequence speaks volumes about how effective this costuming is. Um, this mask is just as terrifying in daylight, if not more so, than it is in the darkness. And yeah, uh, everything about the scene is just artfully executed. The audio is another thing I want to acknowledge. Her boombox turns off and you get a really like bleak, stark example of like the nature, just silence and nature around her. And you have just like the kind of like that cold settling in. It's a very specific sound. I mean, you, you're you in Rhode Island, right, Brandon? You know, like winter, like what, uh, there is a just a stillness to it. And this moment captures it. And 
um, once you start to hear the ice skates take to the ice that like scrape, scrape as, as the killer is starting to close in on Christy. Um, I think the audio in this moment, it really stands out um, for me. I think it's probably some of the best usage of audio during a kill sequence that I can think of. I have to say that the sound design of the entire movie is actually really well done. I think it's some um, the foleying, everything was balanced really well. I guess it kind of makes up for like the lack of like lighting in a lot of the scenes, but the sound design is on point. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And then from a score angle, there's a really specific uh, string arrangement that comes into play here. Uh, I fucking love strings. Give me strings all day long. And it's again, perfectly placed. The only thing I would even maybe possibly say, and I even a complaint just I don't even think the full extension of this kill is necessarily needed. The aspect of her running across the ice and the killer coming up behind her with that scythe and get, you know, and basically tackling her to the ground. They struggle. They have a whole moment where the, the scythe does go into her shoulder. And then she manages to use that doll to knock the killer off and like apparently knock the killer out. Like this doll must be made out of fucking cement. I don't know. Um, but the killer is like down for the count. Now, a few things. Christy chooses to take off running which like okay as you do i guess in a horror movie but girl you're in fucking ice skate step on this person do something you could do so much more to prevent what happens next this kid this killer is just laying on the ice completely incapacitated and you choose to like waddle away into the snowy tundra just the worst possible choice ever um it does lead into like kind of this extension that i almost kind of wish that we would have just gotten a really awesome kill right there on the ice because of the brutality of the pursuit. That whole moment of pursuit is what really makes this moment for me. What comes afterwards is fine. It's still effective, but like, I don't think we really needed it. I don't know. That might just be be me though. I agree. Yeah, no, because it does go on a little bit long. She, um, but there is that scene where the killer right before he attack, he gets to her. He actually, the killer, I say, I'm saying he, it's, the killer hacks the doll's head off and the the doll's head falls onto the ground. And it's really effectively done because at first, like if you're, you know, if you're the audience member and you're watching this, it happens so quickly that you might for a brief second think that it's actually Christie's head. Yeah. That got cut off because it's very similar. The hair color and the hair length and everything is, is exactly the same. The dolls wear the same outfit, the same, everything. So I think that was really cool. But he does hack her in the the killer does hack her in the uh, the shoulder. She runs off into the woods. Uh, there's a long scene of her just like rambling through the woods trying to get out. You can tell she's in a lot of pain, which I do like the fact that that we do see the, the Leslie Donaldson, the actress, definitely gives us the gives us that she's in pain. Like she's stopping every once in a while, just crying out, and she makes a stupid decision to stop in front of a tree to kind of get her bearings. And immediately what happens, the, the, the killer somehow knows what tree she's going to stop behind because <laughs> we can see right away that there's nobody behind the tree or nobody coming up towards the tree. But the second she's against the tree, all of a sudden the killer takes the sickle and brings it in front of her and cuts her throat, cuts her head off. Again, this killer is has to be one of the smartest killers in slasher movie history to know all of these specific things that these characters are going to do and where they're going to be. It's Miss Cleo. <laughs> if only. I mean, wow, that would have really it, been a twist. Miss, 
God, I mean, I would have been drawn in if if, 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 the kill, if Miss Cleo was involved in any way, shape, or form. By the way, I believe Miss Cleo has died. That is a sad reality. Yes. Oh, she's missed. She's missed. <laughs> um, so this moment wraps up, and the girls are informed that Christy has left a letter under Stryker's door stating that she's left the, the audition process um, and then quit. Um, so, and so we are one, you know, we're rounding it down. American Idol has voted one off. So this, this leads into the seduction sequence. Is this the, the seduction sequence with the mask? Um, which I've got to say that, I mean, this movie for all of its weaknesses, one of the things that I, I applaud most are, are some of the acting performances over the course of this film are really quite striking, um, and this whole seduction sequence involving yeah. Stryker and Samantha, I, I honestly think it's kind of like a masterclass performance from both of them. Um, the, the level of defeat in her by the end of this sequence, like is just so well played, um, yet again, yet again. And I can't emphasize this enough over the course of this movie. He proves just what a piece of shit he is by the way he handles this and the way he treats her in front of these girls. But, um, the acting in some of these scenes is really what keeps this movie afloat in my opinion. Yeah. It's really good. He basically, she comes in and she, he's getting ready to audition the, the four remaining actresses. Uh, and he wants to start with Brooke because she's the uh, veteran, but Samantha comes in at this point and says, no, I, she's not the veteran. I am. And he's like, God damn it. What do you want? And she's like, I want to act. And it leads into this whole thing where he's like, fine act. And he makes her, <laughs> He somehow has this head mask. Now, again, where did this come from if the killer literally just had it? Is it worn in the movie? Does Audra wear this mask? <laughs> I don't know, but this mask is getting around. But he 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 makes her put the mask on and try to seduce him. Because he's like, you know, you will <laughs> never you aren't you aren't always going to have your looks to rely on. So you got to I want you to seduce me. And it's it is definitely kind of you know, this is 1980 was when it was, well, between 80 and 83, but it came out in 83, started filming in 80. But if you think about like this scene and kind of like the statement it's making, I mean, even what, 40 years ago, there it's making a statement about how looks are kind of more important than anything, you know, for, for an actress, for a female, like it's all about your looks. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting for it to go that, to go there 40 years ago. You know, yeah. he's telling her all you have right now are your looks. If you didn't have your looks, you'd be nothing. And I want you to, you know, it's it's very yeah. And he's really just using his masculinity um, or his, the fact that he's a male. He's using that over her to um, really just demean her. It, it's it's a, it's a tough scene to watch. Um, she's very beaten down at the end of it. I don't know why she's still fucking there. Like, I mean, it's his house, so I mean, I'm shocked that he's allowing her to remain there. But okay, whatever. Um, overall, though, just that whole sequence doesn't it, it, it leaves me feeling very uncomfortable, more so than anything. The fact that it was done in front of these other girls, most of which I mean, several of which are significantly younger. It it just it, it's a it's a cruel moment on his behalf. Um, and, and she definitely suffers at his hands because of it. Next sequence after this is comes into another kind of seduction sequence is the scene between random extra girl one and random extra girl two the is lauren and tara or is that their names the scene where they're just like fondling breasts 
that's the next scene. No, the next scene is actually Stryker approaching uh, Patty. Oh, fuck. You're right. Oh, my God. Remove that, Troy. Cut that out. (laughs) Make sure you skim that out. I don't want to sound stupid. No. um, Yeah, go ahead. No, so the, the next scene is Patty has called Stryker down to meet with her because um, she is feeling like he hasn't given her any time. He hasn't spent any time to get to know her. And she is just really awkward. And I can't <laughs> imagine that. And I, I kind of, this is the moment where I kind of like feel like Jonathan is kind of right. Because if this Audra character is supposed to be like this dramatic diva you know, that's, that's just over the top mad. This Patty character is the complete opposite of that. Like she's a jokester. She's a comedian. So I don't kind of blame him for telling her. He basically goes into her and tells her that this isn't necessary. Like she's, she's not Audra, you know, so there it's basically a waste of time. And I do like this scene because I think it's very well acted by her. She lays into him, just lays into him and and just tells him, you have not given me a chance. I'm just as right for this part as anybody. What the fuck do you want from me? And she's just laying it, calls him a bastard. And he, um, she's like, what do you want from me? And he's like, I, I don't know, but I just saw a little bit of Audra. Yeah. And he turns around and walks away. Uh, but I do think this is kind of a really good moment for her to shine and, and actually do something. It makes me wish that Patty had more in this film that wasn't kind of the comedic one-liners. I mean, she's got some funny moments in this film, but there's not a lot of focus on her in the sense of like the dramatic arcs of the movie. Uh, not, again, a very mysterious choice of how they ended this film. Um as we'll get into eventually, because she's got this one really great dramatic scene with him where she, yeah, she absolutely shines. He's very dismissive of her as we're seeing. This is how he is with all of these girls now. I mean, he's playing them all like fiddles. Um, But like, you get this great moment where you just see the range this girl has. And also kind of like the desperation she has, she really, really is hungry for it. She wants this role. And because of her finally kind of letting her guard down and you know you can tell this is someone who when she's nervous she she turns to humor she's self-deprecating she's very self-deprecating when she finally lets that go and she kind of just loses it on him yeah you see this moment where you start to see this is why this is why i think she's here she has the potential to play this role if you explore this further i wish they would have explored it further i wish we could have seen more who this character was uh just as a as a dramatic figure in the film and not just kind of like a you know, there for laughs and chuckling it off, you know? Yeah. Because that's basically what her character does for the, for for the whole rest of the movie, besides this particular scene. Now we go to Brooke in her bath or in her bedroom, reading the script. She goes to the bathroom and there's this like prolonged scene where she is in the bathroom, painting her nails. And we keep hearing like shit coming from the shower. And you can see like a silhouette of like a figure in the shower that kind of comes in and out of focus. And then it cuts to Tara and Lauren, the two, you know, you know, extra one and extra two. This is when they're rehearsing and like trying, uh, Lauren's unbuttoning Tara's blouse and like taking her tit out and rubbing it real awkwardly. And they're both just, you can tell they're both super uncomfortable. This shit would not fly today. Like this, whatever it is he's doing, he's got her pulling her breast out. Like he's got... Lauren just unbuttoning Tara's top and just pulling her boobs out, just 
<laughs> Fogbenum. It's really weird. And I don't see how it has any, does it have anything to do with, with this movie? Is this, is this character, is Audra, all of these things, and also like a closeted lesbian, perhaps? Though he does say, This is how we cast a death drop. So <laughs> you just had it. Let me take out your breasts. <laughs> but with gay men, it's like, okay, like it's a different scenario. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's just odd. This that's actually how um Roger auditioned for uh teacher shortage for me. I had him I had him fondle my breasts and I did. And I was I mean, I was shocked that they were as large and luscious as they are, all things considered. When you first see Troy's like physique, you would not expect D cups, but here we are. Uh, <laughs> and that's why he got the role. That's why I got the role. <laughs> but uh yeah, so and then it, yeah, it's just weird. And then he, as they're having like this seductive moment, he like breaks in and starts yelling at him for not doing it right. You're a guy, you're supposed to be a man. Well, what do you like? This woman has probably never touched another woman's breast in her life. Like, what do you expect from not not only that, Troy, but like if I were that girl, I'd be like, I thought I was here to read for the part of Audra. Why am I playing a man? Like, this is not what I'm here for. Like, get a, get a man in here to do this. Why? This is just, he's doing this for his own shits and right. Get Matthew in here. Give him a line. <laughs> uh, back in the, back in the bathroom, Brooke, like, again, we keep hearing shit in the, in the shower. Finally, she like rips the shower curtain open and nobody's there. It's, there's like this robe. And as she's doing this, she like drops, um, spills uh, fingernail polish on the toilet seat. So she has to lift the toilet seat up. I do love the whole play with the, um, like how we think there's somebody in the shower because you do see like the silhouette and it's really weird because it comes in and out of focus. Like you see it get really close. And then it's, so I'm like, what was that? What was the deal with that? Because there's nobody in the shower. So again, they're just kind of tricking you. To, to make you think, you know, that there's probably somebody behind the shower curtain. I kind of used that same thing. I actually got it from, from this film f- for, uh, for my first film party night, there's a whole scene with the shower uh, where the, one of the characters thinks there's somebody behind them. We think there's somebody behind there, but there's not until it's kind of a shocking moment when it actually happens, but she um, lifts the toilet seat up and there's like a decapitated head. It's Christie's head in the toilet. <laughs> An unexpected twist, uh, to be frank. <laughs> and honestly, at this point, I really don't know how this killer is pulling this nonsense off. This killer. Like, uh, pulling double duty. <laughs> Especially because now Brooke goes, she screams, and we get an amazing over-the-top, like, pull, like pull away uh, from her face to, like, the whole room as she's just screaming. Again, there's those art house vibes. I wish we had more of that nonsense. Uh, then she, she books out of the room. And so in the time period that she like runs downstairs, asks for help, and they come back upstairs, the mysterious killer manages to get into this bathroom, remove the decapitated head from the toilet. I don't know where the head is gone at this point, but like this killer really is like on top. Well, not of only him. that is J- Jonathan Stryker is really like mean to her. He's like, there's no dead. You're a, you're a delusional bitch. You're just dreaming. He's like dragging her up the stairs by her arm, like throwing her into the bathroom and be like, look, look, there's nothing there. And she should be more adamant. Like, no, I absolutely saw a head, but so quickly she like just kind of relents. And then she ends up going to bed with him. <laughs> Well, he opens the toilet bowl to show her there's nothing in there. And that toilet bowl, I'm telling you, that needed some Clorox because that was a dirty ass toilet. <laughs> Brooke has been taking some 
heavy shits. Yeah, because <laughs> that toilet is just like, <laughs> she's wrecking it, man. Like, I thought the same thing. Oh. <laughs> but they do. He takes her to bed and fucks her. This is the second of these actresses <laughs> that this dude is bedding. I mean, talk about Harvey Weinstein. Come on. Oh, yeah. I definitely was like Weinstein this whole time. I just kept <laughs> saying Weinstein under my breath. <laughs> like, and that's what it feels like. That's what, what it must be like to have been Weinsteined. Yeah. In the kitchen, Tara and Christy are talking and um, basically, no, Tara and Patty, Christy's dead. Patty are talking. <laughs> basically, Patty's bringing up the whole idea that Brooke is probably just acting because she's acting like a mad woman. She's acting like Audra would. So you know, she's trying to like downplay the whole thing about Brooke thinking she saw Christie's dead body. Uh, and in the meantime, upstairs, Samantha walks in on striker and Brooke in bed. And he like looks at her and gives her and like smoking the cigarette and just gives her this like shit eating glance. I'm like, Oh, you're such an asshole. Ugh. And she goes into her bedroom and has, and throws her purse through the window. <laughs> this cuts over to as you would Lauren entering for what is her, dance sequence and it, it while it's pleasant and lovely again much <laughs> like the skating sequence from earlier it leaves quite a lot to be desired like i mean she comes in and she kind of like she kind of starts like rolling her shoulders and kind of doing some leg extensions but like i don't know if this again if this is like oh i'm assuming a world-class dancer somebody with some form of clout to be up for this role um they really aren't making anything impressive happen. Uh, but before anything can really happen, the camera's kind of pushing in on her. She's rolling her shoulders and doing her thing. And suddenly a glove goes over her face. Again, I'll say this. I forgot. Uh, it made me jump. Uh, it's it's timed really well. The music is very, like, low-key and smooth. So when it happens, it it does startle you. But as we're building up now towards what is, like, the climax of the film... I will say we get plenty of these moments that just do not live up to the moment we got with Christy earlier. And um, I hate to like be someone who compares, you know, one moment to another, but like when you give me something like that, when you give me something as, as well handled as that amazing ice sequence, I expect you to come out swinging every time. And I really don't think any of the kills moving forward are really that great nothing up to par we've get a really cool chase sequence but i wouldn't say the payoff is that good and um yeah it's, it's kind of disappointing like i feel like they blew their load all over the screen with one great sequence and then after that they were just like well i'm done because <laughs> it just never ever ever gets back to that pinnacle of, of just success you know well yeah and plus it doesn't make sense that she did not see the killer come into the room like we see how small the room is. Right. And we see that she, we see what's behind her and what's behind her is there's not an entrance behind her. She's backed up against the window of the room. The entrance is at the front of the room. So she was staring at the en entrance the entire time. So how did the killer get behind her when there was no other entrance? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. So yeah, yeah it's a pretty quick bloodless kill i mean yeah. she's grabbed and stabbed in the back we assume we don't see it we we see her face and we hear like the stabbing motions so she's dead tara in the meantime is you know the last one left with patty and samantha so she's wandering around uh she goes into the study get a book 
uh, someone in a gown, which is obviously who it is because it's the exact same gown that, you know, Samantha's been wearing the whole night, goes in to the bedroom where Stryker and Brooke are. And as they're talking, shoots them to death and they fly out the window. <laughs> they dramatically fly out the window. And that's a, it's actually a pretty cool shot. It looks really good. It's a cool shot, but I'm, I guess my issue is like with Stryker being the character he has been up to this point, like, man, I was really hoping that I would see like, I don't know, maybe his dick go through a glory hole and put into a meat grinder. I don't know. Something that would make me go, (laughs) fuck yes, that motherfucker. I hate him so much. He deserved this. But like, yeah, he gets shot and like, okay, it's at the hands of Samantha. Like it's somewhat satisfying because he's been horribly abusive to her. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's a cool shot. But Troy, you said earlier in a, in a previous review we did, like when it comes to slashers, guns, like whenever a gun's involved, unless it's for like something very comedic, I don't want them. I don't want it. Unless it's a cop. If there's a cop coming in to save the day and there's a gun. It's a different story. But for a killer to use a gun is like kind of like, I don't know, like I expect something a little more creative. Like, like, yeah. And so um, I, I guess just dispo- getting rid of two characters at once through this method, I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. Yeah, it is very under- I yeah, I've mentioned that I hate I hate guns and slasher flicks. I don't think they have a place. So if you use a gun in your slasher flick, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> right. And I was reading too that that scene was actually um, they did some retcon. So the the uh, the groundskeeper was supposed to go through the living room on a snowmobile and die. So they cut that whole scene out, and instead they still want to do the the window sequence and did it with um, with Stryker and Brooks because I think it was a total total waste. Um, but I think both of them would have been lame anyways. But it's it's odd to me that's what they went with. They really wanted that window scene. Oh yeah, I mean, it looked good, like you said. But again, like two those two like prominent characters like that is just kind of like a cop out. Brandon, this is the kind of fucking information I need from you because see this right there. I had no idea about this, and like what sucks even more is Matthew, who has not said a single line over the course of this entire film. Literally hasn't spoken once. But we forget he's there. There's like a random cutover to like in the midst of uh, Tara, like, you know, realizing the chaos that's occurred and screaming. We just see a random shot of the jacuzzi with him laying in the jacuzzi with a knife in his back. We don't see him get attacked. We don't see the pursuit. We see him at one point go off on the snowmobile to look for Christy. But we never and it's never addressed again. It's almost like the actor like quit during the production, they had to have like a body double come in. That's what it feels like because it's so disconnected and disjointed, you know? Totally. It probably wasn't, probably wasn't that situation. It probably was some the actor couldn't come back or something. I've listened. I've been in I've been in films where a killers have walked off sets and I've played the killer for the rest of the movie and I've had to kill myself. Like these things happen on movie productions, especially with slashers. People get mad about things, people quit, and then all of a sudden. You're playing three characters, two of which are the opposite gender, and you just got to go with it. <laughs> well, especially, yeah, especially if it takes three years, if it took three years to film yeah. this. So basically what happens is, yeah, uh, Jonathan's body falls through the uh, study window, so Tara sees it. So now she sort of becomes the final girl of the film, uh, in a sense, because it's down to her and patty and and uh samantha but we now shift the, all of the focus on tara for the last you know 10 minutes of the film which 
again, to me is a very just interesting choice because she is perhaps one of the least developed characters in the entire film, but it it comes down to her. She runs outside to get help. She finds Matthew dead in the hot tub. She finds this car that won't start because it's a prop car. Basically she runs into this garage. that's full of props like this basement or garage. that's full of all these props. So there's like this car she thinks is a real car. She tries to open it and the door falls off. And we do get a shot of like the hag mask person in the hag mask watching her from the backseat of this car. That's pretty cool. Um, but as she's running through this garage thing, the hag actually attacks her and she's able to get away. She realizes she's locked in. And so you get this pretty intense pursuit between the the person in the hag mask and Tara. She's kind of maneuvering through this creepy prop room. That's just full of mannequins and all kinds of random shit. It looks like a Cindy Sherman photo shoot, all the like mannequins and doll parts and things in there. It's pretty awesome. Oh, this whole set is like, it's like a gay man's wet dream. Like this location got <laughs> beautiful mannequins with red lips. You've got all kinds of gay colors. You've, got great lighting you've got signs <laughs> going off i mean it's a great fucking location i i i always feel like with it with a quality chase sequence you have to have like and not to beat a dead horse here but like it's important to have the stakes raised a little bit in the sense that like the character involved you have to feel something something for this character and like unfortunately for this movie like and it's not tara's fault by any means She's not, she's, and when she's on camera, she's fine. But like, it's just kind of like, who is she? That's like, that's how you feel. Like, oh, how's this chick the one that's having this very grand moment? And again, it feels almost like this is a character who just stuck around through the whole production and got lucky and just was like, well, she's the only one still standing. So she'll get this final scene because everybody else is, you know, quit. Um, But I mean, and this whole sequence is actually pretty great. Like it is a really vibrant colorful well-executed pursuit um but yeah like the fact that like i just don't care about this character really kind of like takes some wind out of my sails um i'm I'm just thinking of like my iconic chases of our time like why do people i know what you love i know you did last summer so much it's because of the sarah michelle geller chase scene well why do people care about that scene because sarah michelle geller is charismatic as fuck and you get a shit ton of time with her beforehand so you're rooting for her through this whole scene this girl i mean it's 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 a it's a well played sequence. It's timed out well. It's effective, but it kind of just feels like it's not going anywhere because you're like, well, she's got to die. There's no way that this random girl is going to just survive. She's done nothing for the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there is a pursuit. So the uh, there is a one moment where she is smart because she like puts her jacket on this mannequin. So when the hag late hag masked person comes in and sees this person standing there with the jacket, she stabs it. But it's a mannequin and Tara drops down from like the the ceiling and like kicks her. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so she she does have a little bit of fight in her. You know what I mean? She's not like worthless. She's at least trying to to do something. But she does kneel down to take the mask off of this person to find out who it is. And of course, the person grabs her right at the, the moment before she grabs the mask. And Tara beats her with a fucking two by four and, and takes off running. And so again, Tara's a pretty serviceable. She's she's trying to do what she can to survive. She gets to a dead end, and like the only place she can go is through a into this vent. 
But oh, I mean, in the meantime, she does run through the room with all the mannequins in it, right? And what she does find is um, Lauren's body hanging oh, yeah. among the mannequins. Yeah. Such a lackluster reveal, though. Like, yeah. it is. I was like, are you fucking kidding? This is it. Like, and she's got like some blood coming down her, but I was like, not enough. Not enough. And I also want to acknowledge that every time, every time this hag is like down, like hit that knocked down. She's fucking down. She's like, she's like knocked out. She's just laying there like, uh, like family guy style with her arm over her back. Like, and, and, and like, she could have been defeated so easily on multiple occasions and that, and she seems to have no peripheral vision in this mask, like, which I mean, understandable because this mask is gigantic and has all this hair. But like, I just feel like she, while the hag is a visually foreboding assailant as an entity trying to kill people, like I don't find this individual threatening whatsoever, and I really think like that they should have been killed by this point. <laughs> like I think it would be fairly easy to have defeated this person. But somehow they keep on just killing people. Oh yeah, they they all you have to do is like push her, and she falls and goes unconscious for five minutes. That doll, which when, when Christy beat her with the doll <laughs> over the head, she was she's out. <laughs> So uh, Tara does run to this dead end. She gets into a vent and it's kind of a suspenseful scene as she's hiding in this vent and she's like trying to not to let the killer see her fingers holding the vent door open or holding the vent up. And the killer comes in, kind of does a little walk around and, and leaves. And there's a moment where you hear a door close and we think, okay, maybe this girl is going to survive. So she opens the vent and as she's crawling out, uh oh, dun dun dun. She gets pulled back in. So, how did the killer get into this vent to get her? Is what I want to know. Uh, like, it's just another <laughs> one of those moments where it's like, oh, that's it. Here's the thing it's like this person, this killer has never been to this house before, right? So, how would they know where all these nooks and crannies are? How to get into a, how to, how the alternative route to get into a secret vent in the basement? Like, it makes no sense. <laughs> No, no. And like, it, it's just such a bummer where like Tara has put up quite a fight for the finale of this movie. And I'm sure she was not expecting it whatsoever. So good on her. <laughs> but for her to be dragged off and literally all you get is like a, a echoey scream. And like, it's like well played for what that is. But like, we never see what happens. We never see a reveal. We never see any gore. It's like, come on. If this is like the big final moment and this is this character's defeat like give me give me some blood give me something i mean i don't know whatever we don't get anything we don't we get some screams echoing through and then we cut to patty up in the kitchen so nobody has heard all of this transpire apparently because now (laughs) patty's just opening up a big old thing of champagne samantha comes in and they are going to have a glass of champagne together Basically, it's revealed that uh, Samantha tells uh, uh, Patty, you know, that he left me in the asylum. He 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 was going to leave me there. And uh, Patty's like, well, how did that make you feel? And she's like, well, what I learned was an actress must always be in control. Uh, and then pretty much Patty's like, well, where's Stryker now? And, and Patty's or Samantha's pretty straightforward in the fact that she tells Patty I killed him. Uh, I had enough. I, I shot him. You can call the police. I don't care. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, I feel like they really felt they needed to wrap this movie up because this finale is quick. <laughs> oh, it happens so quick. There's not even, yeah, there's no chance for suspense. No, because as soon as Samantha says this, 
Patty just turns around and wields a butcher knife. And she's like, I killed everybody else. And now I'm going to kill you. And that's basically all it is. She just walks right up to fucking Samantha. And she starts stabbing her. Like, out of fucking nowhere. Like, you get a little bit of a piece of dialogue where she kind of fills her in on what happened. But, like, you could have given me a chase. You could have <laughs> given me... You could have given me some kind of epic final murder. But, like, it really... Yeah, you can, yeah, some... Yeah, I mean, some, I mean, Samantha does give a very dramatic scream, but she's an actress. I'd expect that. <laughs> but here's the problem, is we've seen Samantha, the Samantha character, be a pretty strong-willed character throughout the film, right? And at this very moment where it requires her to actually have some balls, which we've seen that she, we know she does, she just cowers in the corner and lets this wimpy little fucking comedian bitch come and stab her. And like, let's talk about the reveal of Patty being the killer. There is, there is no reveal. There really is no reveal. She like, she literally laughs and says, Oh, I killed everybody else. That's the reveal. <laughs> well, There's no- uh, well, okay. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm saying in, in, in the fact that we have like, she doesn't get, we don't, we don't get an unmasking. No. We don't get anything. How, I mean, do you feel satisfied knowing that it was Patty? No. Brandon, what do you think? <laughs> I, I think, um, with what they have, it's not satisfying. I think there might have been a storyline there that might have built up to her being the killer a lot better. It just seems kind of random. It does. It does. I feel there's so much they could have done with that character of Patty. And it's there. Like, you see, like, glimmers of it. You see sparkles of what could have been, like, her big monologue with Stryker. Or the, the fact that they go back, because at the end, after this reveal happens, they go back to her big stand-up moment they have her they go over some of her dialogue that she said in the beginning where she says have you ever wanted something so badly you do anything to have it me i wanted to be an actress and everyone's like laughing but i mean she means it she means this i wish with all the time that they spent developing her sense of humor i wish they fucking would have given me some more nuance and some more flesh meat to this character because I do feel that the way it plays out in this final cut of what the movie is, it does seem very lackluster. And it's such a bummer because, yeah, you're right. You can, you can definitely grasp that there was something there and they just they just didn't pull it off, I think. I agree. It's rushed and it just doesn't, yeah. it doesn't jive very well. There was really no motivation explored for her doing this extreme besides saying she wanted to be an actress but everyone there wanted to be an actress you know what i mean and in fact brooke is the one that makes the comment early on the film that she would kill for the part yeah it seems like they were so busy making everyone else a red herring that they forgot to give her any real motivation to be the actual killer brendan or or troy either of you because i mean i know i you know i've seen this movie multiple times and I, i enjoy it but in the sense of like the the knowledge of the pr- the production and how troublesome it was do you guys know of any of the context or of the the story that was skimmed due to what happened with the production do you know what was lost is there anything that did not make the final cut of the film that you guys know of that maybe would have changed the overall context of the story i don't know yeah there's supposed to be a lot of uh footage that was shot but wasn't used but as far as what it is it's never been revealed yeah i mean it's amazing when you think of like a lot of these older films like for example i love the movie the stuff i can't i can't get enough of the stuff and it was just revealed that a uh, celluloid was found uh, a reel of film was found 
with the original cut of the movie that's over 30 minutes of additional footage. Now that's going to be a totally different movie. Yeah. When, 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 when they, if they get, I'm sure they're going to release it, you know, but like, you know, we're at an age now where people are yearning for that material. I mean, you tell me if they found, I don't know, 45 minutes of curtains that's never been seen. Cause I feel like there's probably oh, yeah. hours of footage that just never got used. I bet you they could make something so much stronger. I don't want to say like better, but better, but like, I mean, this movie, it, it does not suffer from weak acting. It does not suffer from bad location. It does not suffer from a bad killer. It does not suffer from lack of artistry. It suffers from uh, a jumbled mess of a story that you can tell was they tried to edit together and the editing just did not do it justice. You know, it's unfortunate. It's just, like you said, there's just so much there. Like there's so many good things happening. Yeah. And it's just, it wasn't, it wasn't cohesive. You had two different, you can kind of tell you had two different, two different mindsets, two different, two different intentions with the film. And it it shows because it, there's like just lack of consistent tone. Uh, some things are, some things are very well explored and other elements are not. And it just leaves for a very like cold feeling at the end of the film. Um, and the film does. end. we do get a final shot of Patty who's now in the asylum. And she's delivering her stand-up comedy routine to the other patients who are totally not, you know, into it at all. Yeah, it's it's a it's a bummer that we didn't get to see what could have been because yeah, like you just said, I think there's a shit ton of scenes in this movie that show the time that was taken to finalize these moments, the moments that I think were, you know, executed in shown to completion of what they were supposed to be versus a lot of other moments where I think they were just rushing to get this thing over with. And God does that show. I mean, there are plenty of moments in this movie that take their time and breathe and allow the story to develop. A lot of the early scenes in the movie really are well handled. And then you've got all of these scenes towards the middle and the end that just feel rushed and poorly pieced together. And and just, it just really feels like it feels like someone took a puzzle that they found in their basement and they poured it on the floor and they built it together and the puzzle's missing like 20% of the pieces. So you can kind of see what the picture was that the puzzle was supposed to be, but without all those pieces, you're never going to have a full image, you know? <laughs> yep. It's sad, but it's still a very interesting film, very influential film. I think there are some elements of the film yeah. that work very well and are very memorable. So overall, I mean, it's a film that I, I don't, I don't dislike the film at all. I actually find it very, very watchable despite its kind of jumbled mess of plot that, you know, I I still think it's very watchable. I I think it's uh, a lot of, I don't want to say a lot of fun, but just it's so different than the uh, slasher films that were coming out during this time. You know, it's, it's a much more mature slasher film. Yeah. It's almost like it's a slasher film made for, you know, obviously a, a more mature adult audience than what was coming out at that time, which was very much the teeny bopper camp themed high school theme slasher flicks. So I, I do appreciate, I appreciate it for what it, for what it is and what it does. And when it does things well, it does them really, really well. There's a lot of really great aesthetics to the film too. I think that's my favorite part about it is just, there's a lot going on there that makes it look creepy. I don't know if it's intentional or unintentional, but like, I really do love the, the, the low lighting. I, I, I don't know. I love a lot of the sequences in there. Oh yeah. Like visually, like, again, you can see what the original vision was, even with it not fully surviving to the final cut. What, what 
is there. I mean, it still is visually pretty sumptuous. I mean, like there's a lot of rich colors and just really well execu- executed sequences. It's just the story that that suffers more than anything. But yeah, I mean, I understand completely why this film has had such an influence on it, on the fan base and on viewers uh, within who within the genre who love the genre. You know, because it is um, it is in many ways unlike a lot of the other films of that time. Uh, and when you use the term mature, Troy, I would agree. It's 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 uh, the purpose behind it, the motivation behind it, the storyline. It's not just like your typical college campus slasher. This is a movie with way more nuance. The, the exploration of how these women are treated within the industry at the hand of a very egotistical male figure. I mean, that holds up to this day. And like mentioned way you know earlier at the beginning of this podcast, uh, th- that that kind of presence within the industry eventually caused the the tipping off of the of the Me Too movement. Um, so I think this film still rings uh, very relevant. And um, yeah. God, I just I hope that one day someone finds that footage and and you know brings to light what could have been because I I'm chomping at the bit to see it. This is a film that I would love to see uh, what the original vision was. Same. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe one day, uh, you know, they they released that the Blu-ray to it a couple of years ago and all the fans were freaking out because they thought maybe they were going to include all the lost footage, but they didn't. So who knows? Maybe someday. But yeah, that is 1983's Curtains. Curtains. My goodness, we did it. Brandon, thank you so much for picking this title. Hey, anytime, anytime. Oh gosh, we appreciate it. We appreciate it. We appreciate having you um and your presence on this episode and uh just like wrap things up take a moment take this platform to kind of just share the social media or the websites or anything that you really would want to share with the audience in the sense of promoting yourself or if uh, promoting your products where they they could secure death drop gorgeous uh if you guys are still i know you had an ongoing indiegogo for um saint drogo is that still running yeah, that's still up and and running. Share it, share all of it. Let's hear it. Yeah. So if you go to Indiegogo and look for San Drogo, you'll see our um our little teaser in there. There's a it'll um still have the option to donate money. We definitely still need money. <laughs> so if you uh, if you do want to donate, definitely feel free. Um, other social media outlets, uh, we have a, a production company, Monster Makeup. Um, so I think monstermakeupllc.com. You'll, they'll take you to the Death Drop Gorgeous page, which has our has our link tree to where to see the movie. Um, it's streaming on Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, a um, bunch of other, uh, not, well, rent for rent on all those all those uh, platforms. Um, the DVDs are available through Darkstar. Um, so if you, yeah, it's all in that, that link tree. Um, St. Drogo has a, uh, a Twitter, has an Instagram and Facebook, as well as Death Drop Gorgeous and Monster Makeup. So yeah, and then uh, have a little surprise I'm working on in the meantime, too. It's going to be a short um, that I don't, I can't say too much about, but um, hopefully there'll be more about, more, he'll more about it in like, uh, like around March. <laughs> Oh yeah, please let us know. We would love to keep promoting for you. And, and uh, with anything you guys have coming up, um, we want to keep having the rest of your group on here too, just because we love having other queer filmmakers and gays within the industry. We love it. We love seeing you guys do your thing too. So thank you so much for sharing and, and being here with us. Anytime and back at it too. I'm glad you guys are doing this as well. We, you know, this is a, you're setting the stage for these other, you know, other filmmakers such as yourselves to, you know, get out there. It's great. Um, can't do this stuff without you guys. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Yeah, we appreciate it. We appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk to us about curtains. So yeah, our, our real quick, our, our next 
episode will be coming when December, right? Dropping in December, first week of December. And since it's December, we are going, of course, the cliched holiday horror route. So our uh, our next episode, we will be covering the uh, 1980s slasher flick directed by David Hess of uh, Last House on the Left. To all a good night. To all a good night. Yes. One of the very first. Yeah, it's one of the very first killer. I know Silent Night, Deadly Night gets a lot of, you know, uh, recognition for having the killer Santa Claus trope, but uh, To All a Good Night did it before. So we, you have a killer Santa Claus stalking some sorority chicks during a Christmas break at a sorority house, which heavily was kind of an inspiration for my film, Stirring, aka Mrs. Claus. I drew a lot of inspiration from To All a Good Night for that film, including opening with a prank, the gone wrong, and all that fun stuff. So I, I love the film, so hopefully we will have a very good conversation about it. And yeah, so we'll be kicking off December with very festive choices. We um, and we are taking all of December to just keep it just the two of us building castles in the sky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, you are uh, you're our last uh, our last guest for the next few weeks. All through December, we're going to just. Go back to our traditional format before the new year and come the new year. We got a whole bunch of awesome peoples who are going to be joining us for some really great titles, but I mean, what a better Christmas gift to leave you guys with. Brandon. <laughs> if only you could see his beautiful, beautiful shining face along with his, his sexy voice to go with it. Uh, so Brandon, again, thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here and um, you're such a treat. And I, I can't wait to see what comes from you guys. And I have streamed uh, Death Rap Gorgeous, but I can't wait to get my hands on a physical copy. And I can't urge that enough too uh, for our listeners. If you're going to support this project, Go all out, buy a copy of the film so you know that those proceeds go back to the filmmakers and you know that you're getting your hands on a physical copy. That is definitely like the best way to support a filmmaker, I think. There's some fun outtakes on there too. We have an outtakes reel, a deleted scenes reel, director commentary. It's it's pretty fun. Awesome. Awesome. I'm definitely going to be getting my hands on one. Cannot wait. And that cover art is so awesome. It's so sick and gay. I love it. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, on that note, oof. I boys, I gotta get ready to go to Greece. (laughs) I got a flight tomorrow. Oh, we'll see about that. After being in an airplane for 10 hours, I'm sure I'm going to be bitching about it the whole time. But yeah, boys, this has been great. Thank you so much. Yes, it has. All right, guys. Good night. Good night. Good night. All right, everyone. Have a good one. Bye.